Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! Well, I'd like to start by wishing everyone out there a happy Valentine's Day. If you are stuck spending your evening with us, <laughs> hopefully at least you got some uh, chocolate, chocolate. Flowers. Yeah, something nice. Yep, poems. Or if you, you're spending your evening with us voluntarily, thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so tonight we're going to talk about Valentine's Day. Which can be either, I don't know, it's a favored holiday among some people. In recent years, it's become much cooler to sort of dislike it. Uh, Galentine's Day? Yes. Galentine's Day, made famous by uh, Parks and Rec. Yes. So, there's lots of great variations. Um... Also, of course, various types of anti-Valentine's Days. Yes. Um, I don't remember the last time I actually really tried to celebrate it, honestly. Um, There was a couple of years where I tried to make, um, you know, those sort of underbaked chocolate cakes that have like a liquid center? Ooh, yes. Yeah, I, I have tried to make those... Um, on a couple of occasions, and it turns out it's really hard to intentionally underbake a cake for just the right amount. Like either you pull it out too early and it totally collapses into a puddle of like goo, or huh. you pull it out too late and it's a delightful little chocolate cake, but it is not like liquid in the center. So you make those... That's funny, because I think I always kind of assumed that the chocolate got, like, piped in afterwards or something. I don't know. Like, cream No. <laughs> there is... I think there's a version. If you're not doing, like, actual chocolate in the middle, if you want something else, you can, like, scoop it up with ice cream scoop and, like, freeze it beforehand. Ah. And then you put that in, and it melts during the cooking process. Ooh. But, like, the, the recipe I was trying to follow is like right. legit just sort of underbaked chocolate cake wow and uh after a couple of mistakes i was just sort of like oh whatever valentine's day bah. right you still had a tasty <laughs> chocolate cake of some kind though I yes yes i mean which is what um is <laughs> yeah it that probably is all right so but valentine's day has it's very old. Well, St. Valentine is very old, right? Yes. So... At least one St. Valentine is very old. Maybe well, they we all say. are. Um, it's, it's a fairly common name in the Roman era. Mm-hmm. So, this is kind of the problem. Um, you know, there's kind of one or two main Valentines who are the, the martyrs that we're talking about. But there are actually probably some other martyrs named Valentine. And some other saints, or, you know figures who were venerated named Valentine, who are not included in this list. So, you know, that is important. Who are not necessarily included on this day. <laughs> um, this day is sort of specifically, probably for Valentine, either priest in Rome, who was martyred, um, or Valentine, who was a bishop of Terni. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but basically, um, third century Roman martyr Valentine. Third century C C E. We're yes. talking. Okay. Yes. Well, it has to be the side of the year zero because otherwise right. it would be no, Greek. Well, also no. It wasn't too much. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> oh right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. You definitely have to be Christian to become to be a, a Christian saint. martyr. Yes. Yeah. Not to be holy, of course. I mean, lots of holy people from the Bible who were Jewish, but mm-hmm. um, yes, to be venerated as a saint. You have to have been Christian. Um, and in this case, martyr means absolutely, yes, martyred for your Christianity. And there are... So this is the other thing, though. We really know nothing about Valentine, any of them, really. Ex- I mean, there's some later Valentines we know more about. But these original martyrs, we really don't know anything about him or them. And a lot of legends that spring up later spring up because of Valentine's Day, <laughs> Right. So, you know, in the Middle Ages, as Valentine's Day starts to become a thing, um, you do get these legends that are like, oh, he performed marriages, right? Uh, Christian marriages, which, you know, would have been outlawed or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And so and this is one of the reasons he got martyred for being a Christian, and um, you know, blah, blah. And um, all of those legends seem to be later. Right. I mean, we don't really know anything specifically about Valentine. (laughs) okay um and a lot of these legends then are created later based on the fact that valentine's day has become associated with love um there's also one that says you know that he wore like an amethyst ring which who knows where that came from but has been named as the reason why that is the birthstone for february oh interesting Um, But also these things, again, might be, it might be entirely retroactive. The Middle Ages loved stones. Stones were for everything. Um, You know, they're all different stones that meant all different things. You engrave them with different stuff and Mm -hmm. for different magical purposes. Um, And so the idea that he had a ring of amethyst that may have had a cupid on it or something, um, and this was kind of a secret whatever that he would marry you... um, as again, right? These are all sort of legends that spring up much later because of things that already exist, usually, right? Mm-hmm. So the connection between Valentine's Day and love, quite possibly the connection between February and, you know, Amethyst, whatever. These are all things that sort of emerge later. So there are a lot of legends you may have heard of. Um, there, one has to say, not necessarily any of them true, um, but there were some actual martyrs named Valentine. And that is where we get them. So they, you know, die in the 200s. It's a couple hundred years before they get their feast, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so St. Valentine, and you know, usually you assume it's one or the other, but it's a little unclear. Like, who is the real St. Valentine that this feast is really for? Anyway, February 14th becomes established as the feast of St. Valentine, um, the date on which one of them was presumably martyred. Okay. 496 is where we sort of get it officially established um, by Pope Gelasius I. Um, So 496 is still pretty early, right? Um, Valentine has been dead for a couple hundred years, but, you know, that's pretty quick still. And the sort of sense of instituting it um, and giving him an official feast, it's not entirely clear specifically why, 
Um, there was definitely a move. A lot of early martyrs were sainted and given feast days, right? It was a way to sort of honor them. It includes a lot of early popes. Um, you know, a lot of people get feast days, yeah. basically. So um, at the same time, you do have, we talked about this a little bit in the Christmas episode, and maybe also in the Halloween episode even a little bit, um, the sort of ongoing attempt to eradicate essentially Roman festivals and traditions, right? We're now in Europe, so the Roman Empire used to have control. We got a lot of um, pagan stuff going on. Yes, there are a lot <laughs> of pagan festivals we've talked about in connection with other holidays, Christmas and Halloween. Um, and this one, basically, um, we have at this hmm. point okay. attempted to sort of eradicate them. And of course, by we, I mean the, you know, essentially Catholic Church, um, which is not me, but there we are. Um, anyway, so officially, like by sort of 391, um, all non-Christian festivals are banned. So that not just, you know, Roman pagan, but also, of course, Jewish, you know, whatever else. Um, anything that isn't officially Christian essentially gets banned. Um, however. That's a very rapid uptake of religion, honestly. Yeah. And you think about it from the year, approximately the year zero. Mm -hmm. Or a few years after that, until 391, they're in charge of everything. Yeah. I mean, Constantine has a chunk to do with this, of course. Um, yes. He's, what, 272 to 337. He's emperor from 306. Yes. Um, he, you know, his mom, Helen, supposedly finds the true cross. So, yes, suddenly. Yes. What By used to be. Conquer and all of that. Yes, exactly. So suddenly what used to be <laughs> the Roman Empire is now a Christian empire. Um, also mm -hmm. worth noting, I don't know, we might discuss his British connections at some point. He's um, sent off to the far reaches of the empire, um, which is to say the British Isles, to mm -hmm. learn how to, you know, be an emperor, I guess. And he's in York, actually. <laughs> Eboricum. When word comes down. And if you go today to sort of the cathedral and stuff, you can see the, you know, you can see Roman York. And one of the things you can see is sort of the foundations of some of the original Roman stuff, like the fort and this, where where he was presumably first crowned, basically. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so he, he does this. <laughs> so yes, it is very quick. And it's a little, you know, we've talked about other places, like Ethiopia also becomes Christian very, very quickly. In, you know, in the 300s, mm -hmm. they're also Christian. Um, but it's a little, maybe, it's maybe a little less top-down other places. <laughs> you know, obviously in the Middle East, it sort of, it instills itself in various places, mm -hmm. but it's, it is a little less top down. Europe is the place where it is really, it of course spreads, but it is also instituted from the top down. Yes. Yeah. You know, so there we are. And of course it continues to instill itself this way in other places, but yeah, basically, yes. You know, in some ways you might consider 391 late to be starting to abolish everything. I mean, Constantine's been, you know, dead for a while, right? True. Um, not a long, you know, what, 337, so sometime. And nobody had really exactly come up with the idea of just, like, being tolerant of other religions. Well, some people were. It existed in some places, but yeah, not here, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, basically, um, a 
you know, all these things have been kind of abolished. Um, Gelasius is definitely annoyed that people are still celebrating stuff that isn't Christian, mm-hmm. like Lupercalia, which is celebrated the middle of February, February 15th or so, maybe sort of the 13th to the 15th for the full festival. Um, and Lupercalia is a festival, it's a Roman festival of fertility and purification. Okay. Um, and in fact, um, it also, February is sort of the festival of purification. Um, various related words being purifying the stuff that you've used in the festival. Um, and February gets its name, therefore, because of the feast of purification that happened during it. <laughs> So that is why February oh, is February. Okay. Yeah. And it's funny because probably if you've heard of Lupercalia, you think of it as a fertility festival, which it is, but also purification. Yes. These things really okay. were seen as going together, right? Sure. So I think, yeah, its reputation is definitely a little bit different from, you know, how things, how it actually worked, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. The, hmm? the only things I've heard about it as a holiday yeah. is that young men would maybe run through the streets and hit each other with whips made of wolf skin or something. Yeah. I feel like there's wolf wolf skin in it. Maybe they wore wolf skin and they just hit each other with regular whips. Honestly, the wolf connection is a little unclear because, um, it, I mean, Lupercalia obviously comes from the wolf. Right. You know, and that is how we know the feast today. We don't call it February, although that would make some sense, because again, February. I mean, um, but w- why exactly? I mean, obviously, wolves are very important to Rome. They're the symbol of Rome, all yes. these things. But exactly how they fit into this festival is a little bit unclear. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there were actual rituals. The running through the streets and hitting people. <clears throat> um, I mean, this is how it goes down in history. Uh, in Julius Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. um, I believe, right? We get comments about this exact thing. Um, and I think Mark Antony, as he's running through the streets, should be sure to, like, hit Calpurnia with his <laughs> laurel branches or whatever so that she'll conceive yes. is the idea, right? Um, this is right. I mean, it feels <laughs> somehow appropriate for a fertility festival, right? It like, does. Um but young people out being young and virile and yes, hitting things with other things. Yes, <laughs> exactly. There's something. Sorry, after I can the, see why it would pass into the popular imagination that way. Yes, can we just mention the Monty Python skit of putting things on top of other things? <laughs> yes. Anyway, sorry, um, but yes. So basically, <laughs> um, there were, you know, yeah, there are a lot of like actual. Rituals connected with Lupercalia and, you know, rites, things like this. It was not just people running rampant through the streets. That idea is one of the things that really gets heightened by later sources like Christian sources who want to Mm -hmm. portray it as, of course, (laughs) you know, yeah, stupid and vile and barbaric and you know whatever else um not so we're not supposed to take this as a rollicking good time i think it it was it's just that we are over you know and i mean of course you know there are things like carnival today right yeah where yes you do have a rollicking good time i mean there can be a lot of sexual violence as well which is not good um 
this was definitely discouraged around Lupercalia because purification part, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Both of these things. Um, but yes, I mean, you did sort of want the intervention of, you know, certain gods, goddesses, um, the, you know, the branches that you were using came from like special trees, like maybe the fig tree. Um, anyway, so, you know, there were different sort of rituals and rites that were associated with this. It's just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just a like carnival riot, I think is the point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> um, but it is portrayed like that later, but there is a lot more to it is the point. Um, but it is in fact a mid February festival. And again, February takes its name from this festival, right? Which is also known as the festival of purification. February. So, um, you know, there's a bit of a question if the promotion, the establishment, and then the promotion of St. Valentine's Day, again, you know, it's probably a little bit coincidence, but also maybe not entirely coincidence, right? You find mm-hmm. a different festival that fits in to this period. You make it Christian, right? St. Valentine was martyred on this day. We give him an established feast and we make this a Christian festival. And then if people celebrate it, you can say they're celebrating St. Valentine and slowly, but surely they'll agree with you and everyone forget Lupercalia, right? Sure. Again, that's definitely not the only reason, but that is there. It's there. (laughs) It's present. It is worth pointing out, and this is interesting, that having previously, of course, discussed Christmas and how the fact that it ends up on December 25th is kind of happenstance in a lot of ways, 40 days after Christmas is February 2nd, which is Candlemas, which is the purification of the Virgin, right? 40 days after giving hmm. birth, a Jewish woman purifies herself. Um, and also in this case, the child is presented to the public, so it's also the presentation of Jesus at the temple. Okay. Um, and this is a That's big, you know... The redemption of the firstborn thing? Am I remembering? Uh, I mean, sort of, yeah. It, you know, it all changes, of course, because these are all Christian holidays. They're not Jewish holidays. <laughs> right? Yes. Um, true. But they are founded a little bit on Jewish practice. Um, but Candlemas is, you know, if you read enough British books, you know they have like Michaelmas term and Candlemas term and stuff like this, right? Mm-hmm. So it definitely re- remains becomes and remains a very important holiday um, on the Christian calendar. It is coincidence that the purification of the Virgin happens in February, right? It happens in February because it's 40 days from Christmas. <laughs> sure. But the but nonetheless, it's one of those coincidences that is like brilliantly perfect because for it does mean purification, right? So that is a great example of how something happens that is pure coincidence, Mm-hmm. However, the symbolism works out perfectly, right? Yeah. So you have this really interesting, you know, coincidence of events. There you go. Anyway, so that's purification and so on. Um, also Lupercalia. Um, but yeah, so now instead we have February 14th as the day of St. Valentine. Mm-hmm. That being said, there is not a clear transition from Lupercalia to St. Valentine at all. Um, Lupercalia does kind of eventually die out. Um, but it is not immediately replaced or even 
quickly replaced by what we would consider Valentine's Day. Um, as far as we know, Valentine's Day, as we leave it today, basically shows up um, in the the high Middle Ages, essentially. Hmm. That is a long time later. Like it is a lo- it's a hundred almost it's a thousand years later. A thousand years, yeah. Yeah, it's basically a thousand years later. Not not quite exactly, I guess, because we got four ninety six to the three hundreds, but um, it's definitely a thousand years after Valentine dies. Mm-hmm. And it's what, like you know, eight hundred years after um, the feast is established. So, yeah. um, or maybe nine hundred. It's a little unclear, but basically, um, it is actually possible that it is in some ways invented by Chaucer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the fun part because Chaucer in his poem Parliament of Fowls, which is about birds getting together to choose their mates. Um, it's a sort of dream vision. This is a common medieval trope. The author like falls asleep and has this vision and then wakes up and tells us about it. And it's a very meaningful vision, of course. Damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw a type of... Yes, exactly. Except... <laughs> That's what happens. Yep. Potentially fewer drugs involved. Question I mean, mark. it... Maybe. It depends on who you're talking about here. Um, yes. Chaucer's probably a pretty clean... I mean, who knows, honestly, really, what, he, what Chaucer did. Right. Anyway, um, that being said, so the birds are going to choose their mates. Um, and he says... <laughs> I'll read it in sort of normal English and not as much medieval English, but anyway. Uh, For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every bird cometh there to choose his mate... And every kind that men thinks may exist, right? So basically every type of bird that you can think of. So huge a noise they began to make that earth and air and tree and every lake. So full was there was only space for me to stand. So full was all the place. There's so many birds. Standing room only. Exactly. For humans. For humans, yes. <laughs> of course, person, and I'm guessing, you know, they're birds, so they're they're all over, you know, they they can fly, too, and stuff. But anyway, yeah. yes, so he, there's only standing room for people. There are so many birds, they're going to choose their mates. It's all very allegorical and stuff, you know. But anyways, um, so there we are. St. Valentine's Day is the day when birds begin to couple. Now, Chaucer implies that this is like a long-standing tradition of some kind, but there is absolutely no evidence that anyone else has ever talked about this tradition before Chaucer. Hmm. There are some other people who write about it around the very same time. So we can't say for sure that Chaucer invented it, because some of his friends and colleagues also write about it. But one of them probably invented it. I mean, you know, and he, yeah. he may very well have been the one. But anyway, um, we yeah, don't I mean, know this... that they they had a party or something. And, there was <laughs> and like someone a thought it up. Yes. yes. And then they um, all had to write something about it. Right. That would be awesome. Um, but it is this funny thing, right? That it, this, and this becomes then, I mean, it really takes off. So this is the end of the 1300s, basically. By the time we hit the 1400s, even like 50 years, you know, even like sort of the beginning of the 1400s, um, the, I think the Duke of Orleans, when he's imprisoned after Agincourt, Mm-hmm. Writes a thing to his wife, calling her like his sweet Valentine. Wow, so that would be, I don't know, forty, 
years after Chaucer writes this, maybe 50 or something. And this is all well before chocolate was actually available in the old world. Yes, uh, chocolates were not involved. <laughs> um, but of course, like sweets could be, but they were mm-hmm. not chocolates. Yes. But yeah, and then in the past in letters, very famously, there's this family that like wrote all these letters to everybody. All their stuff is in all their letters. There are all these women who are in charge of running stuff because women were off to war and they wrote all these letters. Um, anyway, they're known as the Paston Letters. So it's so this family in England. And um, 1477, so now we're about, you know, 100 years later, 90 years later, Marjorie Bruce writes to her future husband, John Paston. So she's not quite yet a Paston, but she will be. Uh, she calls him my right well-beloved Valentine. Okay. So at this point, it's sort of in common usage. But yeah, I mean, so it, it obviously takes off at this point. And of course, you know, England is connected to France, so it sort of spreads, right? Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, as far as we can tell, <laughs> Chaucer or his friends kind of invented it, and then it took off. Um, but he, he says it's based on previous tradition, and people have tried to say, well, um, there is a different Valentine entirely who was actually celebrated on a different day. I think he was like Bishop of Genoa or something, and his stuff was much later, like in May, and maybe, maybe he's talking about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it... Mm, it doesn't, yeah, who knows? It just I mean, took off. People were like, hey, yeah, we want some, to been- some way to celebrate yes. romance. Yeah, he seems to have invented the tradition. Um, some people also think the poem itself may have been written in honor of or in on the anniversary of, whatever, something, um, Richard II's betrothal, hmm. um, which is possible, but, um, and definitely one of those things that's out there that's that's quite possible, but... You know, whatever. Anyway, he seems to have invented Valentine's Day as we know it, basically. (laughs) And it just takes off. Um, And so then eventually, you know, a couple hundred years later, you get Shakespeare, who, of course, is writing the late 15 and early 1600s. Hamlet, you've got to mention from Ophelia in her song, Mm -hmm. her sort of sad song about a guy who definitely takes advantage. (laughs) But she mentions Valentine. Um, And then Midsummer is the probably more actual romantic romantic reference um, where Theseus at the very end, right, he, they run into the lovers in the forest and they sort of wake them up um, and Theseus says, good morrow, friends, St. Valentine has passed. Begin these woodbirds but to couple now. Hmm. You know, so there we are. Comment on yeah. it's still thought of as kind of this holiday where birds start choosing their mates, but then of course why not people? Yeah. And you get the whole sense of, of course, you know, spring, fertility. This is when, you know, young lovers love the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, also a song from Shakespeare's era. So you get all this, right? Um, and of course, I mean, it's in Shakespeare. As you like it. All right. So um, all of these possibilities. <laughs> um, so here we have essentially the beginning of what we would consider modern Valentine's Day. Um, yeah. That pushes forward and you know here we still have it um Mm -hmm. we've sort of neglected the fact that maybe that's when animals fall in love (laughs) but um you know i mean cute cards still frequently include like animals yeah couples and stuff which is actually funny how often that happens Mm -hmm. yeah i tend to get birds with like i mean uh cards with like penguin couples on them oh yes a bird that Ch- Chaucer would probably not have known about, of course, but yes. nonetheless. But also, I was going to yeah. say that, like, it probably depends a little bit on, like, where you're living, right? Like, 
here, February is not really animal mating time because you're still knee-deep in snow. Right. But um, with penguins, they probably don't care that much. <laughs> it's more about the length of the days. Yeah. Well, you know, they have their their own cycle depending on where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that being said, I mean, you do have some really funny things. Like, obviously, there there are some birds who do mate for life. I mean, that's that's sort of true. Um, and of course, there are a lot of myths about these things. But um, and then you have some other interesting things that, of course, you know, we are all sort of when do we see the first robin of spring? Yes. Right. This sort of willingness that 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 symbolizes the coming growth, coming life, coming fertility, right? When you when you start to see those birds, um, and honestly, the middle yes. of February is the time when you really want to start seeing them, right? Because everything is so dreadful and it's cold and winter's been so long, you know. And you've yeah. only got two weeks to March, so yeah, you feel like it's not it's not impossible, right? Um, so it really fits our sensibility in so many ways. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, it really it really does work out. So um, anyway, so there we are. The sort of invention here of, of Valentine's Day. Speaking, of course, also of like penguins mating for life. Um, and mm -hmm. usually, I mean, or at least some types do. Right. They sort of partner up for life. Um, people also know, I assume at this point that you can have like gay penguins, for yeah. example. So same-sex partners that pair up for life and sometimes do raise chicks, right? An, an egg that another couple... Wasn't there a children's book about a gay penguin couple at the Brooklyn Zoo or something? Yes, uh, Central Park Zoo. Yeah, who raised Tango. Yeah, and there are a lot now, though. Um, nice. And that, yeah, they sometimes do get eggs from couples who have, like, neglected their egg or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so on that note, I figured we'd maybe slide into a little bit of, like, love and gender in the Middle Ages. Yeah, because we often don't think about the love as associated yes, with the silly. Middle Ages. I mean, obviously, right. I mean, like, obviously, we sort of all think of people as loving their children or their, you know, their family members, regardless of the era. But um, I think that the idea that I guess we hold up in our oh-so-modern yes. and advanced times is just that marriage was more of a yes. business arrangement. I can't remember. So... And therefore exclusive um, of love. I know that you posted at one point an article on <laughs> our, you know, we didn't have an episode, like it was between weeks, and you posted an article. Yes. That is... Oh, was it the one about um, Italy in the the Dark Ages and... Quite possibly. Yeah. Sort of geared... Yes, yes the plague. To a, it made yes, you very angry. to annoy a medievalist. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. So there was, th this is years ago, like a decade ago or more, but it, it keeps happening, right? Um, someone will write an article somewhere um, and it'll say something like, Jane Austen invented modern romantic love or whoever, I don't know, pick your author, you want to have invented this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and sure. that's obviously such a total BS. Now, Jane Austen's freaking amazing and she did some extraordinary stuff and... I would never, ever say that she didn't, but she did not invent love. Um, not even technically modern love. She's a little too late, if, even if we're going for, like, modern love, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah. that idea of people sort of falling in love and marrying who they want. No. What? So, first of all, I do want to say that we will have a separate episode on, like, 
Arthurian legend and courtly love. Um, and so we're not mm-hmm. going to cover all of that right now, but we are going to point out that it existed, that you probably know some of the legends. Um, yeah, a lot of them involve adultery because people are forced to marry someone and then they fall in love with someone else. But that is super modern. You cannot mm-hmm. tell me that the, there are not a zillion and one stories that are modern. Exactly the same thing, right? Um, also, you could have divorced. I mean, Eleanor right. Actane married a king and left him and married a different king. And also, we'll talk more about her when we talk about Arthurian legends and so on. But we have mentioned her before, because we've mentioned, um, we have, in fact, mentioned Henry. The line in Winter yes, has exactly. come up yes. a couple of times. Yes. Absolutely. Henry II. So, um, you know, there are a lot of things about the Middle Ages, and even before the Middle Ages, right, that you might think, I don't know why we think this, right? It's part of this myth. So uh, we're starting with myths. Um, about love in the Middle Ages. Well, Mm -hmm. there's this somehow abiding myth that um, things in the past, not just the Middle Ages, but just in the past, right? So whatever nebulous period you think that is, right? Um, Yes. (laughs) Yes, the before times. Which, of course, now are like less than a year ago. But once upon a time, the before (laughs) times, I think for people in the U.S. usually meant like before 1776. Um... So yes, anyway, whatever yeah. nebulous period you think of as the before times, that somehow in that day and age, um, there was no love, there was no warmth, there, you know, was no chocolate, whatever, stuff like this. Um, and for the most part, mm-hmm. that's complete BS. Uh, there was, of course, chocolate in the Americas, just not in Europe, etc. That's um, true. So, <laughs> the basic point here is that love absolutely existed way before. So one of the things we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, same-sex relationships a little bit. Um, Lesbianism, of course, the modern word for it, we get it from Lesbos, which is a Greek island where Sappho lived. Right? Um, Right. Prior to the modern era, same-sex female couples, right, um, were frequently called Sapphists. It was called Sapphism for Sappho. Now we just name Mm -hmm. it after the island. Whatever that difference is. I'm not quite sure what the difference is, but anyway. Um, And Sappho, of course, wrote extraordinary love poetry. (laughs) Um, She was very famous for it. Um, And her love poetry tended, of course, to be for women. Right? Um, And Mm -hmm. she turns up in the symposium, too, right? To sort of defend love as an idea. Um, Is she mentioned... She's perhaps mentioned. I I thought um, so. She is quite possibly mentioned. She is... Women don't come up that much in Plato, so... Not the... Seemed... No. The ultimate reference yeah. in the symposium is a woman, but Socrates hmm. gives the speech. Okay. Um, Diatima. Is, she's the ultimate referent. And Socrates says he learned all this from her and then gives the speech that is attributed to her... But of course, it's coming from Socrates. But of course, really, it's coming from Plato. All right. We're going to ignore that. We will acknowledge, however, uh, first Mm -hmm. of all, Sappho is really early. Right. So she's even before. She's like 630 to 570 or something. So she's really early. Um, Even before like theater. Our earliest play is from like (laughs) is from the 570s. (laughs) Right. Uh, it really is sort of hitting its stride. Probably 600 is when it's really hitting its stride. Um, 
you know, so she, love poetry exists, lyric love poetry exists even before sort of theater. Um, and she, of course, again, from Lesbos, right? She's not from Athens, which is where we get almost everything else. But she's so highly regarded. Her stuff is so frequently copied that we do still have some of it. But we also have a ton of adaptations and translations by later people. <laughs> right? Um sort of all the way down even to Catullus in Rome. I mean, there's tons of Roman love poetry. Some of it's very explicit. If anyone did the Catullus Ovid AP as a student in high school, the way I did, um, I got my Catullus, like I went out and got a real Catullus, um, and figured out pretty quickly that the poems we were supposed to read and the poems we weren't supposed to read, <laughs> uh, there was a reason why we weren't supposed to read the ones we weren't supposed I to see. read. <laughs> because those were explicit frequently. Yes. Um, explicit in various ways, but definitely explicit. If you want to get kids, like, much more into reading Latin, that seems like the works to give them, but... Hex, yes. 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 Catullus is fantastic. He is amazing and fantastic and awesome. Um, and, of course, from Catullus, we get all the way back to yeah. Marlowe, speaking of same-sex relationships. Um, Come live with me and be my love, and we shall the pleasure proof, which is originally sort of from Catullus, <laughs> from Sappho, right? It's this long lineage. Catullus is definitely definitely straight i want to say but he is part of this long lineage of love poetry that is definitely not always straight um and in the greek world of course homoeroticism is very right. highly thought of when between men because men are you know the best and therefore relationships right. between men are the best to come back to plato's symposium i think i don't no. know if we've mentioned this before have we mentioned this before we may have mentioned this before um Aristophanes gives a speech in the symposium. It is all about love. It's about the nature of love. And Aristophanes' speech is, first of all, of course, written by Plato, right. not by the playwright Aristophanes. <laughs> but he is the character that Plato is talking through at the time. And he gives voice to what we, uh, to the cliche that we still use when we talk about modern love. Mm -hmm. And that is that we're looking for our other half. Oh, that story. Right. And his, yeah. yes. And his speech, of course, shows up in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Um, in the song The Origin of Love. And the idea is that people once upon a time had eight limbs, so four legs, four arms, our heads were back to back, right? We were basically two people, our backs were, you know, to another person, but we were one person. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were so strong that the gods got worried that we were going to overthrow them, and so they cut us in half. Uh, and they turned our heads around, and our belly buttons are where they sewed our back. So this used to be our back, but now oh. our back is our back. Our back used to be our Okay. Center with the other person, <laughs> right? Um, so they turned us around. You know, our belly button is where they fused us. Um, and now everyone goes around looking for their other half. And so if you are a male-male couple, which Aristophanes says is the highest, mm -hmm. right? That's the best. Uh, that's, you know, like the sun, the highest. Um, then you're attracted to, you're a man attracted to men. Next comes the really fascinating part. Because usually, lesbian relationships get swept under the rug because men are doing the reading, not so much the sweeping, but definitely the reading and the writing and the talking, and they do not care about women. Right. <laughs> so, same-sex lesbian relationships just tend to get, you know, tossed out the window. They're not even thought of. But in this speech in the symposium, Aristophanes says that the second best are the female-female relationships. Hmm. Um, and that they're... That is that is sort of next best. Um, and then the worst ones, <laughs> the people who are basically like the liars and the lazy people and the sluts and whatever. Oh, dear. They are, of course, the same, the heterosexual <laughs> couples. Fair enough. 
Um, this is what the Greeks sort of thought of. Yeah. Anyways. Um, but it's really interesting. It's a really interesting mm-hmm. speech because it actually does not only mention female same-sex relationships, but actually puts them, yes, under the male, of course, but, you know, second place, which is amazing given the fact that usually they were completely ignored. Um, and it is possible that some, that, that has a little bit to do with Sappho for sure. Right. She, she oh, I wanted to mention, I looked this up. Sappho is actually not mentioned in the symposium. She's in Phaedrus. There you go. That makes so. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but still mentioned, right? Yeah. Um, and she is, yeah, she's incredibly important, right? So romantic love, and you can read her poetry today. I mean, yes. And as I said, the legacy all the way through, like, to Marlowe, um, again, who, of course, himself was gay, famously. Gay atheist spy. Yes. No, that was that was a meme that came out. <laughs> I mean, he was probably meme. all of these things. Yes. But, um, and the funny thing is... I'm waiting she- for them to make a period drama about gay atheist spy Marlowe. Yes. That'd well, be the good. funny thing about um, As You Like It, which we had just mentioned, is that... In As You Like It, um, because, of course, Marlowe's pastoral poetry, which he does sort of in honor of Greece and their homoeroticism, Marlowe is commemorated in As You Like It. Mm-hmm. So, which, of course, is a pastoral, right, where we have a lead character who is female but spends a large part of the time male. Um, we do have, and we have a woman, Phoebe, who falls in love with her. Yeah. Um, so we have all of these sort of interesting commentaries on gender and same-sex relationships and an actual sort of overt um, commemoration of Marlowe. Um, it strikes a man more dead than um, a reckoning in a small room. Hmm. Because he was killed over the bill. <laughs> over the reckoning. Apparently. Allegedly. Yes. yes. But, sorry, it strikes a man more dead than a great reckoning in a little room. There we go. Um, and so the great reckoning, of course, being his death and the little room being the mm-hmm. place he died. Yeah. Which is this sort of brilliant moment, right? It's a acknowledgement from Shakespeare that a lot of this play, not just this line, but this play is really a lot of it in honor of Marlowe. Yeah. So, and Shakespeare himself, of course, quite possibly by, look at his sonnets. All right. So the idea, Shakespeare's sonnets. Yes. Okay. So the idea that romantic love was invented, I mean, anytime after Sappho is ridiculous to begin with. But, and of course, we're just talking about the West here. I mean, when you go outside the West. But nonetheless, I mean, romantic love has extremely old origins everywhere. But in all places and all times, including today, people don't always get to marry the person they want to. That is still Mm -hmm. true. Even if you are not, like, bargaining with another family for their land. I mean, it's still a thing. And so, yes, it does matter frequently who you are. If you were of a low class, you could probably marry anyone you wanted. doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but to this day, if you're high class, you know, Harry and Meghan left Britain. Yes. Right? So, yeah. I mean, it still matters. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, in some, the more things change, I guess, is the point here. The more yes, things change, it's true. the more they do not change. I have messed up that up. Yes. Okay. But anyway, so that's that's that commentary for love and romantic love. Now, having spoken of same-sex relationships, I do want to say, we have mentioned before Brunetto Latini, 
right? In mm-hmm. Dante, <laughs> uh, this gay friend of Dante's. Oh, yes. He was married. Yeah. You know, he had a family, yeah. but he, again, wrote this love poem to another guy. Um, he is down there. So as far as Dante, you know, seems Dante was pretty sure that he was gay. I mean, and it doesn't seem mm-hmm. to have been a surprise to anyone. And Latini isn't ashamed of it, uh, even though he's actually in the seventh circle, which is pretty far in. Right. But he's right. great. He loves to see Dante. They have a great conversation. We talked about Michael Camille's wonderful sort of discussion of the artwork that accompanies one of the manuscripts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, on the one hand, we have the fact that Dante does put homosexuality in the Inferno in the seventh circle, which is a sin of violence, which is pretty far in. And yet his personal connection to Latini clearly kind of outweighs where he's placed, mm-hmm. where he's placed him in hell. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of interesting because some people sort of look at it and say, well, Dante is kind of as per usual in Dante, uh, like Paolo and Francesca and Dido, speaking of, you know, Rome, Virgil and Aeneid and Dido. Um, he puts a lot of people who died because of love in circles that are earlier on, which is mm-hmm. to say he doesn't give them as harsh a punishment as they could have had. Um, he moves them up a little bit because of love. Mm-hmm. So... It's, you know, some people look at this and say, well, he's talking to Latini. They have this great conversation. You know, um, maybe he's sort of suggesting this isn't as bad. At the same time, he did put him pretty far down. Interestingly, (laughs) um, when he got around to writing Purgatory, homosexuality is viewed as a sin of incontinence incontinence or lust. So he's actually moved it up which is he's made it a lesser sin. So lust, the same as heterosexual Hmm. sinners who sinned because of lust. Right. Homosexual is just seen as a sin of lust. Um, So that's actually interesting. Did he change his mind about where they, where it belonged? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's an interesting question. Um, But anyway, so that's sort of our opening shot for (laughs) same sex relationships. Um, And the idea of, you know, does Dante like, lessen the punishment a little bit. Maybe he does decide, you know, love is love. Yes, you get punished, but not as badly. I do want to give a shout out to John Boswell, um, who died very young, uh, but wrote... Oh, did he write that book about gay marriage in uh, yes. medieval Europe? Yep. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, his... He, I think he died of AIDS. Yes, yeah, um, in 94. Probably in the, yeah, the early 90s, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is when his... The, that book came out. Um, but 1980, he published Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, which is where he opens this argument. And his idea was that um, there's a lot of really close friendship. And this is something scholars argue about a lot. At what point mm-hmm. is love poetry, at what point does it mean sexual attraction? At what point is just someone's way of trying to describe how deep your friendship is? Yeah. Right. And his idea was that the church performed friendship ceremonies, and he said that a lot of them may have, in fact, been same-sex marriages in practice. Hmm. Right? That you'd have this sort of ceiling of your friendship, but that this was probably frequently done for people who were not just friends. This is essentially the older version of, like, a Boston marriage. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Which was just, like, two ladies who sort of moved in together. Yes. Two old seamstresses or something. Yeah, Boston... I assume. <laughs> well, <laughs> someplace. Yes. Maybe you don't have to be specifically in Boston. Right. But well, Boston sort of is, the... because Boston was 
Well, anyway, yeah, fam- famously sort of um, liberal. Well, well, sometimes it's it, sometimes I, prudish, right? Like banned in Boston that, becomes a. Um, yeah, I assumed yeah. that it was actually Boston because there were a lot of people going to see. So if you could have two women who are widowed or something who could move in together. All of these things are possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his, so his second book then is actually better known by its subtitle. Uh, but the full title is The Marriage of Likeness, Same-Sex Unions in Pre-Modern Europe. Um, it's generally known as Same-Sex Unions in Pre-Modern Europe. Yeah. And that is that book. And that was the 94 book. Yeah. I feel um, like he had a big difference of opinion on same-sex relationships in pre-modern Europe um, with Foucault. And then they both sort of died and it was not resolved. Yeah. Big shame for both of them. Because yes. geni- both geniuses. I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, and this is a funny thing. This is, and this is a discussion that it's possible, depending on the age of our listeners, <laughs> you may or may not be that aware of. I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. If you're if you're in college right now, you may or may not be that aware. But for a long time, there was a significant portion of the LGBTQIA plus community who felt that um, marriage was not a goal that the community should have because right. basically um, the idea was that marriage was essentially assimilating into the larger culture um, and suppressing oneself, right, for the sake of heterosexual right. norms. They're like, why would you want to do something that straight people do? Yes. Right? Like, why would you want to pretend to be interested in marriage and have kids and whatever? Because that's not who you are as a group. Right. Yeah. Um, of course this all changed drastically <laughs> within just a couple decades, honestly. But even yeah. 15, definitely 20 years ago, there was still a significant wing of the population that sort of saw it this way. The acknowledgement was that, particularly in countries like the US, where there are so many freaking tax things tied up yeah. in marriage, uh, that the fact that, you know, you had to, to get death benefits, insurance... Um, to be able to be the parent of someone's child legally, like all, that for all of these visitation things. Visitation for visitation people in the hospital. hospital. Yes. Yeah. Um, that for that to be recognized that marriage was an obvious solution to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in some ways, the idea was why force the recognition of same sex marriage? Why not force same sex relationships to have a legal status? But not necessarily mm-hmm. marriage. Something that would be seen as equal, you'd get all the same rights, but you didn't have to call it marriage. Yeah. And so in some ways, I think as radical as Boswell's work absolutely was and totally remains. I mean, people argue consistently that these were not ceremonies of marriage. These were ceremonies of friendship. In some ways, the fact that he was saying that this assimilation in some ways had happened a thousand years ago. There was a feeling maybe that he was reducing the community. I mean, aside from the people who just hated the idea and were extremely homophobic, we're not talking about that, mm-hmm. but we're talking about within the community, people who felt that he was sort of reducing them to, you know, heterosexual norms in a way that they did not necessarily like. No. So, you know, that argument was definitely out there. But that being said, um, 
I do want to say that same-sex relationships between men, which, of course, are what he worked on, um, and right. male friendship, which has also plenty of books written about it, people essentially arguing against Boswell, that these were friendships, but very, very deep friendships. All of this has been so much written on, um, but women, <laughs> plenty of women writing about women, however, is, again, it is so much harder to see, right? Because to be part of the written record, first of all, is tends to be harder for women. You're not in as many positions of power. And when you are, you still have to sort of shout to make yourself heard. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially, when women aren't in the room yelling, <laughs> they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, right? Um, so same-sex relationships between women do frequently get sort of just, as I said, swept under the rug, not even noticed. I mean, just walked over. So I'd like to give a shout out to Jacqueline Murray's essay, I guess, um, Twice Marginal and Twice Invisible. Good title. Yes. And this is, of course, about the fact that as same-sex couples, lesbians, I'm using the modern term because there you are, it's what we use. Lesbians, of course, right, as same-sex couples, they are marginalized and invisible, but as female same-sex couples, they are twice marginal and twice <laughs> invisible. Yes. yes. Um, now, it, they aren't entirely invisible, <laughs> sometimes for the wrong reasons, of course. Um, Augustine did condemn female homoeroticism somewhere around 423 in a letter to nuns. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, and you might see a theme here. Um, men, religious figures, tended to be extremely worried about nuns and homoeroticism. Because you got a lot of women living together. So speaking of Boston marriage. Right. Yes. Lots of women living together. Who knows what they're actually doing. Exactly. Um, and so you start to get, like in the 7th century, um, you get a rule. Um, Donatus of Beneskin writes this rule um, for nuns. Uh, and he warns them against sort of particular friendships. Right? You can't pray the rosary and chill, basically. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, and then there are some mm. penitentials that warn against lesbianism. Um, and these are, of course, where, you know, if you've committed certain sins, you have to atone. Um, frequently, this gets put under the same sort of category as male same-sex relationships. Um, and, as you know, a lot of them don't mention women at all, again. But uh, some people are really worried about nuns. And so then there are things about, you know, you shouldn't be holding hands. You know, you shouldn't be calling each other girl, which I assume is, you know, it's a term of affection, right? <laughs> As it remains. Yes. Um, I know. Well, the younger sisters should not ever get into bed with the older sisters. Sisters, of course, means none here. not Right. Um, and the funny one about that is that they are clearly reading female same-sex relationships through what is still a Greek, a Greek perspective, right? An ancient Greek perspective mm -hmm. for same-sex male relationships, which is the older male and younger male lovers, right? Um, yes. So they have still have a hard time like seeing women separately, <laughs> but they're acknowledging that these things are possible and they're trying to stop them. There were some medical treatises that um, supposedly offered cures for lesbianism, sometimes based on things supposedly that Galen had come up with, stuff like this. There are occasional court cases in 1405 in France, two women were jailed. Hmm. On the other hand, you have other things. So Hildegard writes, does have this one comment where she is, is strongly against female homoeroticism, but at the same time, her writings to one of her friends, one of her, her sort of main friend, is frequently cited as a potentially sort of homoerotic relationship. 
And the same thing we've talked about Hadavij before. Um, mm-hmm. Some of her love poems to her fellow nuns, well, begins nuns. Anyway, um, very much Marina's homoerotic poems. Mm-hmm. So they're both sort of out there in limbo. Um, there's also a woman, Troubadour. We don't really know who she was. Um, Bieris, the Roman. She's French speaking. Um, and she wrote what has become sort of considered to be the earliest vernacular lesbian poem to a Lady Maria. Um, although some have suggested that Beerus is inhabiting a male persona, right? Writing to a mm-hmm. woman. Um, or that Maria is, in fact, the Virgin Mary, right? So there are some people who have said essentially this is not homoerotic because either Beerus is just, even though she's a woman, right. she's writing from the perspective of a man for a woman, or she's a woman writing to the Virgin Mary. You know, people really <laughs> like to come up with reasons why poems are not homoerotic. Yes. Is all I can say. Yes. Like, people say that about a bunch of Shakespeare's sonnets, yes. too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. And, you know, it's... I mean, and the thing is, either of those things being true still doesn't mean that it's not homoerotic. <laughs> which right. is the funny thing. Um, there's a ton of poetry to Jesus from all sorts of people that's incredibly erotic. In some cases, hmm. it's, you know, heterosexual. In some cases, it's homosexual. It depends who's writing it. Um, I mean, but that's... So, yes, poetry is frequently erotic, but the fact that it might be to the Virgin Mary does not actually, wouldn't mean that it's not homoerotic, right? That's the other thing. Right. Or the fact that she's sort of inhabiting the persona of a man also would not mean that it's not homoerotic. Mm-hmm. You know, she wants to come as the male lover to this woman. Like, that's fine. <laughs> I mean. Right. Right? We, we get the There's point. There's a lot of layers. Yes, absolutely. This is poetry, right? That's how poetry works. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so that's sort of, um, on that comment, um, I would like to get to uh, trans personae in the Middle Ages. Um, okay. So again, there's a long-standing mythological history of this. And we could go back to, like, Tiresias. The legend of Tiresias is he comes along, finds two snakes mating, he strikes them apart, and it becomes a woman. Uh, she lives seven years as a woman, is out walking again, comes across two snakes mating, strikes them apart, or possibly doesn't, it depends on the version, uh, and is transformed into a man. All right. Um, Sometime Hmm. later, Zeus and Hera are arguing over who has more pleasure in sex, men or women. They go to Tiresias, because Tiresias has experienced sex as both. Right? Which also, by the way, is just the Greek way of saying it's expected that people sleep around. No matter what they do. That's how it works. Okay. Tiresias. So first we should point out that Zeus, of course, says that women have more pleasure and Hera says men have more pleasure. All right. Oh, that's interesting. So they've swapped. Well, because they're arguing. They're both saying you have more pleasure and I do all the work. Right? That's what they're saying. Um, Okay. And so Tiresias says that women have way more pleasure and men do all the work, siding with Zeus. It is worth pointing out, of course, that Tiresias is at the moment a man when he says this. Like if they'd come Mm -hmm. in the seven years... When she was a woman, nah, who knows? But anyway, right. so um, so Tiresias, being a man, answers with Zeus. Hera gets super mad, and <laughs> I think we can probably see where this is going if you know anything about the character Tiresias. Yes. She strikes him blind. Yeah. 
Yes. Zeus. I mean, hmm? when you are asked to referee an argument between the gods, it's not going to end well for you. It's not. But you also can't Whatever refuse. Whatever side you take. Because, right. like, that would also not end well for you. So, um, <laughs> anyway, so she strikes him blind. Zeus, you cannot undo what another god has done. So Zeus cannot undo that, but gives him the gift of prophecy. And this is how Tiresias becomes the famous blind prophet of the plays. All right. Um, and he has an incredibly long life as well, which might be another reward. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But anyway, he lives through like generations of Thebans because um, he's in all the plays. Anyhow, um, so there we are. <laughs> um, but this Tiresias is only one in sort of many stories like this, right? Shikandi and the Mabarata, born female becomes male. Um, so there are a lot of variations on this, right? It is it is not an uncommon story mythologically speaking. In real life, it is also not a necessarily uncommon story. I mean, that should be mm-hmm. obvious now, but it has also always been true. So, um, we have mentioned Brother Marinos before, actually. Yes. And Brother Marinos, um, in episode 5, Hermits and Anchoresses, note 23, by the way. Um, but Brother Marinos was born a woman, um, Marina, and in Lebanon, um, wanted to become a monk. Um, and her dad helped her out, helped disguise her as a monk, sent her off to the monastery. She became Brother Marinos. Um, eventually, the father dies, and Brother Marinos, you know, is really amazing and aesthetic, incredibly aesthetic. This is why Brother Marinos was in the Hermits and Anchors of the section. Um, but at some point, there's a a sort of excursion, right? They all have to go do something. And so a special group is chosen from the monastery and Brother Marinos is one of the people chosen. They have to stay overnight in an inn um, on their way to or from the place they're going. Um, usually they can make it in one day, but this time for some reason they can't. The same night they're there, um, a knight comes by and, or someone like a knight, you know. Um, and of course by knight in this case we mean mercenary, not, not a knight in shining armor. The knight seduces the innkeeper's daughter and tells her that if she becomes pregnant, she should say that Brother Marinos did it. Right? The knight met the other monks and decided Marinos seemed like sort of the youngest and easiest to pick on, I guess. So, sure enough, the innkeeper's daughter becomes pregnant. She tells her dad that Brother Marinos did it. Um, Brother Marinos confronted at the monastery and sort of breaks down and begs forgiveness for sinning, but won't actually say what the sin is that he has committed. Sure. For obvious reasons. We know what it is. The sin is the fact that, you know, he was assigned female at birth. All right. And so, basically, um, Brother Marinos is thrown out of the monastery, um, given the child when it's born, and told to raise it, raises it for ten years at, like, the gates of the monastery, begging and all this stuff. Um, The brothers Mm -hmm. finally decide, like, enough penance has been done and let Brother Marinos back in. And eventually, you know, sometime later, when Brother Marinos dies and the body is being prepared, they discover, of course, that Brother Marinos was assigned female. Um, They are then horrified because pretty clearly Brother Marinos did not father this girl's child. You know, punishment ensues for, like, the innkeeper and his daughter. They're chased by demons, maybe, or something. Who knows? Anyway, um, great penance is done. Brother Marinos, of course, becomes a saint and is known as Saint Marina. But it's unclear if we... You know, if that is correct or if this should be St. Marinos. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so that example is not actually totally unknown, right? Um, Joan of Arc, of course, famously dresses in male clothes, and it's one of the main things that she is condemned for 
in her trial hmm. for heresy, right? Is the fact that she like wears male clothes and refuses to dress again in female clothes. Obviously, as a warrior, she dresses in male clothes, and in prison, right. she also does because she feels they give her more protection against violence, which is quite possibly true. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so this sort of sense, um, you know, this sense of sort of gender rigidity and gender fluidity um, absolutely exists in the Middle Ages. Similarly, I do have, might as well bring up my final example here um, of someone who was intersex. Um, Elena, so born Elena de Cespedes um, in Spain, 1545. This is after the Reconquista. Uh, her mother's enslaved African woman, uh, Francisca de Medina. Elena is eventually freed, trains as a weaver, a hosemaker, a tailor. Um, is well, a weaver and a hosemaker. Um, is married briefly, has a child. Her husband, you know, they sort of separate. Um, and he dies. She's pretty sure he dies. She sort of disappears. Turns out she's been living as a woman, right? And now she lives as a man. Okay. So for twenty years, Aleno, living as a man. Mary uh, becomes a tailor and then a surgeon. So you can tell, like, hmm. Elena's working his way up, right? Female tasks <laughs> and then male tasks that pay better, right? Jobs that pay better. Um, so eventually becomes a surgeon. Um, claims to have been intersex from birth when sort of confronted finally. He's living with a woman. They've been married legally. And this is sort of, as I said, 20 years later. Um, but they the couple runs into this guy who knew Olena when she was Olena, mm-hmm. and that she'd been married to a man, um, and had been pregnant, um, and he said like everyone always knew that she was intersex, but she had previously been married to a man. So what's up? Uh, and so the inquisitors from Toledo basically imprison her, check her out in various ways, um. And ultimately, the interesting thing is that she's really sort of, they do decide that she is female. So she's recorded as Elena. It's hard to know, probably today we would should be using they pronouns. Um, because Elena himself, or themselves, um, says that they're intersex. Mm-hmm. So um, doesn't, comp- doesn't say necessarily you know, absolutely claims to be male and thinks he should be allowed to live as male, but does absolutely say intersex, says that he was transformed from female to intersex. So not from female to male, but female mm-hmm. to intersex. Hmm. And um, the ultimate sort of um, indictment is really for bigamy because he couldn't no. prove that his first husband was dead when he married hmm. his wife. <laughs> and so... Okay. Um, they did get remarried eventually, but anyway, so is condemned for bigamy, receives the same punishment that's, that a man would have received for what was at the time known as sodomy. Mm-hmm. But there's this really interesting, it's this really interesting case. And um, as a surgeon, there is a lot of suggestions, right, that essentially his training or their training allowed them to fool doctors and fool all these people into believing that he was male because he had been examined before several times. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of people had said, yes, he has transformed. Hmm. And as I said, ultimately, the Inquisitors don't buy it and reassign them as female. Um, but it's a, it is a sort of fascinating case because a lot of people clearly did believe, certainly that he was intersex, but possibly that he had transformed, right? Hmm. And it's... Speaking of Foucault, of course, in the 1800s, so that's in the 1500s. In the 1800s, there's Herculine Berbin, who um, is assigned female at birth, later reassigned male, was intersex, but probably thought of herself as female, and more specifically as a woman who loved women, hmm. and ends up committing suicide. Uh, but Foucault um, studied her memoir, which has been published with a foreword by, by Foucault. But it is worth pointing out that the the Inquisitors of Toledo absolutely thought that Eleno was claiming transformation so that they could live as a lesbian. Hmm. Right? That was clearly what they thought, even though they sort of couldn't convict them of that exactly. I want so it's interesting how, how many times throughout history have there been women who sort of dressed as or transitioned to living as men. Mm-hmm. Who took up medical roles. Right. Because actually, the first successful C-section, in successful in the sense that both the mother and the child survived, yes. uh, was performed by Dr. James Barry. Yes. Who, <laughs> in yep. like, 18... Isn't there a movie about him or something that came out? There might be. Huh. It was like the 18... Around 1815, 1820. Yeah. Yeah, born Margaret Ann Bulky. Yep. Bulkley. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's really, it is. It's a really, um, you know, there, to- there are tons more examples. Mm-hmm. These are just some interesting ones. And they have some fun articles yeah. that you can cite. Um, but it is, yeah, it's absolutely worth pointing out. Medical roles, you know, religious roles, obviously, at some point. I do actually want to take this, say, though, um, take this moment to say that we were talking about myths, Pope Joan is a myth. <laughs> Pope Joan is okay. a misogynist myth that was created by men. We should back up. Pope Joan was allegedly a woman who was elected to the papacy. I believe dre- that she had been masquerading as a man. Yes. Is the story. And that she eventually gave birth during a pr- procession. Yes. Uh, which is kind of how you might guess that it's a myth because babies generally just don't work that way. Right. Um, <laughs> and after that, she was probably dethroned slash killed. And that it also led to popes <laughs> having yes. to have their testicles examined before. They <laughs> yes, all of this is not true. Yeah, this is not true. And if it's not true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a misogynist myth that is actually based precisely on this fear though, of women gaining power by, you know, yes. quote-unquote, pretending to be men. Yes, it's very much like the sort of, you know, bathroom debate mm-hmm. today, right? People saying, oh, right, this sort of trying to scare people, but men will be going to women's bathrooms. No, men are still not allowed in women's bathrooms. Women are allowed in women's right. bathrooms. Including trans women, who are allowed, you know. Um, but it's that same idea, right? That way of trying to build fear. Um, and so, yeah, basically, right, women are getting power by pretending to be men they're coming to this is so funny because today right the whole bathroom debate is like women have to be protected yeah. they need safe spaces all of which is true but you know all women get included in that whereas 
for the male version for Pope Joan, right? It's like male spaces of power. Oh my God, they're being infiltrated by women. No, <laughs> stop. Right. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's, you know, it's a, it's great to talk about, yes. <laughs> but it is a myth. And that is why it's a myth. I mean, it's yes, but that is, that is what it was right. for was to build that sort of fear. Um, but that being said, right, there actually were certainly women. Yes. Like brother Marinos. Um, yeah, some of them become doctors or surgeons. And you can sort of see why. These are professional positions where you can really stay by yourself and also you get some skills that might be useful to someone who's disguising mm-hmm. themselves, right? Yeah. But also, you know, then you help you help others. I mean, it's a it's a sort of interesting thing. You get to like live in the world world that you want to live in the world. Yeah. Um, so there are there are tons and tons of examples. These are just some specific All right. points for Valentine's Day. Yes. Not all of them were happy, but, you know, people living the way they want to. We should point out, though, that Oledo and his wife were very happy until they ran into that stupid acquaintance, right? Yeah. So, there we are. All right. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's end on that note, then. Wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day and hope that you enjoyed our stories and learned something and got some chocolate anyway. What else? In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook if you want to get our updates. It, there's an Ask a Medievalist Facebook group. You can tweet at us at Ask a Medievalist, and you can go to our website, which is, you might have guessed, askamedievalist.com. Uh, we have a contact form. We have a bibliography under the citations link, and we have very extensive notes on everything that goes on, um, and we'll throw some cool stuff up for this episode as well. I think that's it. So until next time, everybody just uh, have fun and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.